Hi, I'm Mark Priestley. After a life spent in the elite environment of the Formula One pit lane learning how to win, this podcast aims to bring that elusive high-performance culture into your daily lives. In this week's episode, we're looking at communication in many of its forms, plus the multitude of layers that lie within them. And thinking about Formula One testing right now, can the communication around that offer us something that could give us an advantage in our lives and businesses? Welcome back to Pit Lane Life Lessons. Talk about how Formula One teams are so successful. Tiny things, but you only find those tiny things when you look for them. Of course, there's only one winner in every Grand Prix, so for everybody else, you haven't won, so it could be deemed that's, that's a failure. Hello everybody and welcome back to a brand new episode of the Pit Lane Life Lessons podcast with me, Mark Priestley. Thank you so much for joining wherever it is you are in the world, however it is you're listening, whatever it is you're up to whilst listening, I appreciate every single one of you genuinely. Um, Now this week I want to talk about communication but I want to zone in on the communication that we're seeing in and around Formula One testing right now. I mean, I guess many of you have been watching or following, listening to, or at least keeping up with the Formula One testing ahead of the 2023 season. There are only three days in Bahrain before the teams go racing again. It's the first opportunity for the teams to see their cars out on circuit, as well as for fans and media to start really analysing every single aspect of Formula One teams, their drivers, their technology, Everything about that team will, of course, be analysed. It'll become the focus of many media outlets, YouTube channels, TV channels. It becomes a huge centre of attention. Now the season is almost back underway again. And given that we've got such a short period of testing this year, that, I guess, becomes even more intensified. Now, I have been following along, as you'd imagine, and as well as the lap times that, of course, many people will look at, and I guess there is something to be learned from those. Of course, there is, particularly in a season where we have only three days of testing, and it's at the circuit where we're going to be racing very, very soon. Those lap times become more meaningful than perhaps when we have six days of testing in Barcelona, for example, somewhere where we won't be racing for many months. So there is something definitely to be learned from that data. But what I want to look at is some of the other data points that are around F1 testing, because as I've been following it, I've been looking at, as I always do, the communication coming out of the teams, because the lap times can give you something, but of course you never quite know the context that that lap time was set in, i.e., you know, uh, what sort of fuel levels uh, were, were being operated, being run, what sort of engine modes. Um, quite often we don't, we're not entirely sure of tyre usage and life. We don't know the run plans of the team. So we have to give a little bit of a caveat to any lap time because outside of that team, we don't really know. So I always look at the communication coming out of those teams. What are the drivers saying in their post-session interviews? What are the team principals saying? Uh, also on top of that, what does the team look like? What's the body language look like in and around that team? It was something I was always very aware of when I was inside the team in that I knew that journalists, um, TV uh, personnel were always looking at us, watching what we were doing as much as just to, uh, you know, to get some stock footage as to try and understand a little bit more about the car and about how we were feeling about the car what we thought about our chances. 
Of course, the drivers were the ones that got the microphone jammed under their faces uh, at the post-session interviews, but you would always get a journalist wandering over and just for a casual chat in the hope they might pick something up. And I was always aware of what I should or shouldn't communicate to those people, many of them who are friends of mine, people at other teams. Should I be giving out genuine feelings about what I'm thinking and how I'm feeling inside the team, or should I be hiding that? Should I have been trying to cover something up or give a, 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 a sort of image or portray an image that might be the one that I thought the team might want us to say? Of course, there was never any instruction from the team in that sense, because there was no means for us as mechanics and engineers to have formal communications with the media. But that didn't stop people coming to sort of try their luck and just have a casual chat and a conversation in the hope of picking up a little nugget of information. So it was always something that I was aware of, what I was saying, how I was saying it, what I was doing and how I was portraying myself in those slightly more public moments at the back of the garage, in the paddock or in the pit lane. Today, though, I'm watching Formula One and I'm thinking this is happening even more. And I'm now beginning to analyse what's coming out of the teams in terms of communication. And I thought it was an interesting exercise because, of course, that communication, and I'm talking about the sort of subconscious layers of communication that we'll get into in a moment, can be really interesting, first of all, but also, I think, quite valuable when we begin to understand them. And I think valuable to you and I. Even though you're well outside of the Formula One paddock, I think understanding things like body language, things like the, the types of communication, the way we speak, the, not just the words and, the, and the, the sentences that come out, but how we say them. What kind of intonation do we have? What kind of confidence is behind those words? And what's our body saying about the words that are coming out of our mouth? Those things can be really fascinating and more and more in today's world get analysed around Formula One, but also in the wider world too. People are analysing what we do around what we say more and more because it's genuine data. It gives a lot more information than people tend to realise. So if we go back to F1 testing as a great example, and this will come as no surprise given that by the time you hear this podcast, testing will be over. Uh, I'm recording this on Saturday, so the final day of testing, although I haven't seen any of it today, um, by the time you hear this, it will be over and we'll have a much clearer picture of the actual pecking order, albeit with the caveats that testing always comes with. What I'm seeing though, and the one I want to talk about and focus on in the short term is McLaren. McLaren are clearly struggling. They're struggling with their car and the lap times will back that up to some extent. But actually, given that I know a lot of people in that team and in that garage, I have a bit more of an understanding than most people about how that team operates. It's been really interesting for me seeing the body language around that around that team, around the people in that team, not just the drivers, but actually the mechanics, the engineers, the people behind the scenes, people who I know their character, I know who they are, and I'm seeing behaviours that I think are giving away quite a lot of information, even though it's, it's all subconscious, even though it's not intended to be a public display. Now, what I'm talking about is the body language that goes along with let's say the words that come from a driver. Let's talk about drivers first. The drivers, as far back as the launch of the car, together with Zach Brown and others, were all talking about how they were managing expectations, how they perhaps weren't going to be hitting targets early in the season. And the season might be starting as a little bit of a struggle. They might be on the back foot and eventually they hope to catch up because they've got stuff coming in the pipeline. So no panic, nothing to worry about. 
but they may not quite hit the ground running at the very first race. Now in testing, we've seen, I guess, more of that. We've seen that being slightly backed up by the way the car looks on circuit. It looks a bit of a, a handful. And even more so, and even more worrying, I guess, for me and for McLaren fans would be some of the body language that's coming out of the drivers as they speak in these post-race interviews, together with team personnel. So, for example, I'm seeing people like Lando Norris, um, a bubbly character, a character who's always full of fun, genuinely got a smile on his face a lot of the time, likes to have a laugh and a joke, doesn't take himself too seriously. In the post-session interviews that I've seen and some of the communications that I've seen uh, with Lando in the, the world's media over the last few days, I've seen little telltale signs, signs like struggling to make eye contact with the interviewer, protecting or hiding his face, closing eyes for extended periods of time uh, whilst he's saying what he's saying, shrugging of shoulders, even if little micro movements, these are little telltale signs that can give quite a lot away. And I'm going to go into all this in a little bit more depth in a moment. But these are signs that are not only backing up the words that he's saying, but perhaps even giving an even greater picture of the words that he's saying, putting a little bit more gravitas behind them. So when Lando says things like, yeah, it's uh, we're running through our daily plan, you know, it's kind of gone to plan and, and the car's difficult to drive at moments, but it's definitely got potential. We're nothing to worry about, nothing too concerning at this point. If he's saying words like that, his body language is almost telling a story that says it's more serious than that. And that's what I'm picking up from it. This is my interpretation of what I'm seeing. I don't know. I don't have any special inside information. I actually haven't spoken to anybody at the team over the last couple of days. I, I would always do that, but I haven't done it because they've been busy. They've been in the middle of it. I will catch up with people over the coming week or so, but I have no special inside information. This is simply my interpretation of what I've seen through the media. Now, the reason to give you some context of why this is important and why I'm so fascinated is because over my years in Formula One, I'm pretty sure I'm right in saying that McLaren were one of the leading teams in terms of gaining an understanding that it's not just what we do uh, that makes a difference to our team. It's how we do it. It's how we go about it. And put that in a slightly bigger picture, Formula One's a very technical sport, always has been. In years gone by, almost all of the focus and energy resource as well was put into making the car go more quickly through technical developments, through making the car lighter, making it stronger for less mass. It's about trying to come up with clever systems, things that on a technology side will outdo the competition. But over my time in the sport, we were one of the first teams to realise that actually there's a lot more to this. And actually behind all that technology is a huge number of people, maybe a thousand people at the biggest teams back in the day. A thousand people that actually create that technology, that come up with the ideas for that technology, that drive it, that develop it, that operate it. And over time, they hone it and fine tune it. None of this technological advancement happens without the people in the team. Now, this is something that the world has shifted in that direction anyway. So businesses around the world are all beginning now, many of them, to start thinking about the importance of the people behind the technology, the people in the business as a wonderful asset. And I'm going to come on to all of that in a, in a bit more depth a bit later on in this episode. But the reason I'm saying it 
is that we had an understanding that how, how we treat people in the team became hugely important. So how we treated them impacted their feelings and that impacted their mood and that has a direct impact on their performance. And as a result of all of those things, how we communicated with those people became more important. And again, I want to focus on that specifically, communication inside the team in the second half of this podcast. But the reason it's important is as part of that process, we began to learn more about the idea of communication and its multitude of layers. Communication is many, many layers to it. And the more of those layers that we employ in our communications, the more effective, the more powerful those communications can often be. I mean, to give you an example of how that can work in the opposite way, the world now, and we all do this, we communicate, one of our primary forms of communication today is text message or WhatsApp message. Now that is pretty one-dimensional, isn't it? It's a series of, of letters and characters, often without even having punctuation, often abbreviated, that pop up on a screen in the palm of our hands. There's never any context around those. There's no emotion or very little emotion unless people take the time to really write that out and convey it. But often these communications that are in this digital format are quick. They are a shortcut. Um, They are seen as a very quick means to an end. And the person who's sending it rarely ever reads them back before they send them. There might be typos, there might be autocorrects that give a completely different meaning to the communication by the time it finally reaches the person who's going to receive it at the other end. And when it is received, of course, how many many of you have received a text message or a WhatsApp message and thought, oh, that's weird. That's not like that person. That's a bit abrupt. Why are they getting so cross? And then maybe fired back across or a short message back in return because you've got, you're, you're a little bit angry at what you've just received. Yet you had no context around it. How many of us have misconstrued text messages or digital communications and as a result of that ended up in an argument or some kind of fallout? I'm sure we've all done it. And it's easy to do because it's one dimensional communication. When we start adding more layers to that communication, it becomes more effective. I mean, WhatsApp and text message is the sort of modern equivalent, if you like, of a very early form of communication that we did many years ago, writing letters, sending telegrams. The difference being that back then we would put a huge amount of effort into those letters and telegrams in constructing almost like an art form constructing the words in the right way to convey the right meaning, to get that right emotion over. They were long, they weren't quick. They were long drawn out and well-considered messages that were articulated in sometimes the most creative and almost interesting ways using language. So when you received that letter, there was a much greater chance of you fully understanding what was behind it. Today, we don't do that. Today, these communications are very quick. They're throwaway. When someone receives one of these messages, it's gone. You never check it again. You never look at it again. A letter was a something that we treasured. We kept it forever. It was a permanent form of communication. Text messages are gone the second we've opened it. So people take very little care and attention over what's in those. Now, what I'm saying is these types of communication that we've become so heavily reliant on in today's world are heavily flawed in terms of what they communicate and how effectively they do it. 
So when we start adding more layers of communication, and this is one of the things that back at McLaren in the day, we started studying, we got experts in, we started going on courses, we were trained in communicating in the most efficient way, in the most effective way both on things like radio, from pit-to-car radios, but also within the team, amongst ourselves. And of course, anyone who had to speak to the media has training in that sense too. How do you get the right things across without being misconstrued? How do you get the right messages? How do you answer questions in a way that's not going to land you in trouble? Body language is a big part of that. Now, those little ideas that I touched on with the Lando Norris example a moment ago are tiny little details, but they are key details. They're some of what actually form a much larger package of details that people who are trained in this field can read and understand a lot more about what's behind the message. Now with Lando Norris, I saw things like him keeping his eyes closed for extended periods. I'm talking a second or two, but when you watch that and you see that, that is something that's is weird. It's strange. It's unusual. We don't keep our eyes closed for a second or two in normal communications if we've got nothing to hide. And the reason that that is in terms of psychology, if we're studying human behavior and the way the human mind works, psychology, which was part of what we have done, what I've done over many years, um, one of the the lessons that that can come from that is this idea that when we're hiding something or we're not being entirely truthful, There are certain mechanisms that humans go to as a default to try and protect themselves from being found out. So if you're lying to somebody, and there's a lot of studies, I've read a study recently of studying the body language of people that had been been convicted or committed heinous crimes like murder, massive, really serious crimes where they'd been interviewed as part of an investigation, for example, trying to protest their innocence, to plead their innocence. And these telltale signs in that most extreme case are really obvious. Some of them are things like keeping their eyes closed for extended periods. And the reason is that we often do, and another way to do it, by the way, is to put your hand in front of your face, is to literally hide your eyes. People will do that by mopping their brow with their wrist. For example, if they've got a towel, in the case of a Formula One driver, you'll often see them, once the interview's underway, drying themselves off with a towel. Of course, they're hot and sweaty. I know all that. But it's also a defence mechanism to hide your eyes from the person that is asking you these questions that you might deem to be difficult. Now, I'm making larger uh, sort of assumptions here and big exaggerations. I'm talking about big, exaggerated cases in the case of things like murder. But... When we're talking about Formula One communications to the media, and if you've got a car that's actually in pretty bad shape and inside the team, things are, there's a bit of worry. Things are not looking good. These are the kind of mechanisms that almost involuntarily will come into play. Protecting Lando from the person asking these difficult questions are a number of mechanisms like putting your hand in front of your face, mopping your brow. It forms a shield. And if you haven't got time or it's too weird or or kind of contrived to put your hand in front of your face for for very long, you've got these two little shields that just fold down, flap down in front of your eyes. And it happens every few seconds. And if you can just extend that every now and again, there's another little telltale sign that could, and that's the big if here, it could be part of something that's a mechanism to try and help protect him from giving away the truth. 
if you're being completely truthful and authentic in a moment like this in an interview, and we talked about job interviews last in last week's episode, and this is the same sort of thing. How, how authentic, how open, how truthful and honest are you going to be in a moment like that? Or are you trying to come up with answers that you think the interviewer wants to hear? Now, when you have to think about portraying a particular story, when you've got to think about whether or not you're giving off the answer that you want to give, and if you need to hold something back, if you don't want to give the full truth, we go back to Lando Norris, if you don't want to give the full picture of just how bad your car is, as an example, you might want to start thinking about holding some of that information back. But when you do that, it takes extra capacity. You can't just completely open up and start spouting words without too much thought. Politicians do this all of the time. You have to take a pause. You have to stop. You have to think about what you're going to say before you say it. You cannot be being distracted by things in front of you. So when you've got somebody looking at you, staring you in the eye, asking you these questions, or if you're on stage in front of many, many people, you've got many, many distractions in front of you. And if those distractions are there, if somebody's staring into your eyes, if those distractions are there, it becomes even harder to remember what to say and what not to say. So these little shielding mechanisms are a kind of key and almost involuntary mechanism that we use to give ourselves a moment to think, but also to take away the distraction that is the person in front of you or the people in front of you. Those distractions are only there, they're only distractions when you've got to really focus on hiding something that you don't want the world to hear or to see. Now, I don't want to worry McLaren fans here. I am giving my observations here. I've got, as I said earlier, no inside information. I genuinely don't know how good or bad their car is going to end up being or how quickly they might be able to turn it around. But certainly from the sign language, the body language rather, that I'm seeing from the personnel at McLaren, and this is not just down to, to Lando here, I've seen this across the board, it's very different from the body language that you see at a team like Red Bull, for example, who seem very content right now. Of course, they'll have their own issues going on inside, but the drivers seem happy to be interviewed. They are not desperate to get away from that interview. They're not shielding themselves. They're quite open. Their body language is open. They don't have arms folded. They're not protecting themselves. They're not closed in. All of these little signs and details give an impression of being relaxed, being comfortable, being authentic in what they're saying. Now, even so, somebody like Red Bull might be happy and comfortable with their car, might be quite content. Even so, they will still want to hold some information back. So you still occasionally get some of these little tells in even the interviews from people who are doing well and not particularly hiding a nasty, grave secret. But when you start to extrapolate that and overlay that information with the other layers of information that we have, the other forms of communication, the actual words coming out of somebody's mouth, the intonation, the excitement that those words are being said in, and you overlay that with data from the car, lap times and all the other things and all the multiple people in those teams, if they've all got body language that shows excitement, relaxation and comfortable, then you can start to build a picture. And if you look at the McLaren team as this example right now, and I don't want to pick them out uh, too much because there are, I'm sure they're not, there are going to be other teams in similar situations. This may be very temporary for McLaren, but I'm just giving an observation of body language because I think it's useful for us to understand. The team across the board are typically having displaying similar types of communications. 
when they want to answer a question uh, that that could potentially have a positive answer, you know, are you going to be able to turn this car around quickly? Are you going to get on top of the troubles? And is it something simple and easy that within a week's time, by the time we come back for the race, you could be on top of? If the answer to that is a very simple yes, and it's an absolute no-brainer, 100% will fix it, that's quite an easy one. You don't need to think about that answer. That can just come out naturally. If you have to think about that answer, it's often accompanied, A, with a pause, B, with a little look away from the interviewer, and C, there's often a little shrug of the shoulders. It's another little tell, and it could be a micro-movement that sometimes, if you're watching a video, you'll only notice if you actually play it back, unless you're looking for it. A little micro shrug of the shoulders can often be a little tell that there is no confidence behind what they're saying. They might be saying, absolutely. There's only, you know, by the time we get to Bahrain for the Grand Prix, we'll have this absolutely under control. It's an easy one. The team completely understand what's going on and they've already come up with a fix for it. Those could be the words. The body language could be saying something completely different. A shrug of the shoulders, which almost gives a question mark to what they're saying. The intonation can also do the same thing. Having to pause and think about it and not having the confidence to look the interviewer in the eye. Going back to those shielding techniques, you get a few of those little tells together and it starts to build a picture that maybe the words that are being said are not the entirety of what that communication is actually conveying. And the reason that these things are interesting is that if we begin to understand these, and this is what we learned back at McLaren in the day, if we begin to understand these things, we can start to understand people more. And in our world, in our lives, away from the intensity of the Formula One pit lane, in our world, we're communicating all day, every single day. We're communicating to people in our offices, to our children and our families and our friends. And yet always those communications are going to be multi-layered. Beyond the text messages and the digital comms, there's multi-layers when you're face-to-face -face with somebody. Understanding the nuances and the intricacies of those multiple layers can give us a better understanding of how someone's feeling. Imagine if you could read behind the words that a good friend of yours is saying or a family member, where it might start to raise some questions where you could probe a little bit deeper and perhaps begin to uncover some troubles that they weren't entirely comfortable sharing in the first place. But by sharing those troubles, maybe if you're a good enough friend or a good enough family member, you can help them. If they're not comfortable enough or able enough, or at least feel able enough to share them up front, sometimes understanding these little tells and key triggers can be enough for us to dig a little bit deeper, just gently probe a little bit further. Just ask the question, are you okay? Is what you're saying entirely the full picture? Is there something more going on here? Is there something else I need to understand to know what's really behind all this? Questions like this that you've picked up on from some body language can just unlock a new level of communication that might be the key to helping somebody. In a business sense, it could be the key to success, getting a deal done, understanding what a client really wants or needs, understanding what your boss is asking you or asking of you. And equally, of course, the way we communicate to others, understanding how body language works and the multiple layers of communication, if we have an understanding and a knowledge of that, we can use it to our advantage. By thinking about how we communicate, how we stand, what sort of posture we have, whether we make eye contact, what do we do with our mouths and our eyes and our hands whilst we're talking. If we think about those things, not in the moment while you're talking, but think about them beforehand, 
and have a, an understanding and a clearer picture of what they mean and what they can do for us when we come to that moment of having the moment of communication with somebody important, like your boss, like a romantic partner. We can already have inbuilt an understanding of what we could or should be doing. Or if we go to some automatic stance or posture, some automatic body language, maybe we can address it. Maybe we can realize it. Maybe we can pull it back and change it because we know what kind of communication that might be giving off. So I'm saying this not to scare McLaren fans or fans of any team that might start reading signs and thinking the worst. I'm saying this because I think that having a picture or an understanding of what this means can help us in the real world, in our lives and in our businesses, well away from Formula One. Yes, it might give us some more insight into what is going on in Formula One, but the bigger picture of this, the bigger power behind this is how we then change and use our own forms of communication to become more efficient and effective. When I was working at McLaren, this training was all there to make sure that we could get efficient communication on the radio, get the right messages to the right people in the most efficient and effective manner, cut out any bits of communication that weren't necessary so that only the key necessary information, the race critical information, was delivered to the driver. Nothing that might be distracting. But we can also use similar kinds of techniques in, in our own lives. Because if we have to have a difficult conversation with somebody, if we're in a pitch meeting where we're trying to get investors to buy into our company, or a sales meeting where we're trying to sell something to a client, they don't want to hear waffle they don't want to hear people rabbiting on and, and the nerves kicking in where they just start spouting words for no reason. They want to see and hear clear, effective communication where the points that are necessary and relevant to them come out in the most efficient and effective way. The information that they need to base their decisions on is what they really want. I mean, how many of us watch the car launches every single season in Formula One and are just desperate to get to the car. All we really want to see is the car. And yet quite often there's half an hour of fluffy build-up. Build-up that is of very little value to most people watching. I'm sure it has some value to sponsors where they're showing where the sponsors' logos are on the car, where they're talking about new partners that have joined the team. But that has no value or very little value to the millions of people who are fans of that team or that sport who just want to see what the new car looks like. This is a launch of a new car, so get to the point. I think we can think about communication in a similar way. If we want to have a difficult conversation with a partner, a romantic partner, after misunderstandings in the past, or where something or behaviour has been upsetting one party, but the other party doesn't realise it yet, that's a difficult conversation to have. You don't want to get too fluffy and beat around the bush for too long with that. Yes, you got to soften the blow wherever you can, but you've got to get to the point and you've got to get the right information to the right person in the most efficient and effective way. Now, we can use the right words, of course. We have to choose the right words and choose our words carefully. That's one layer of communication. But the way we do it, the way we sit, our body language, the contact with our eyes, the, the way we're facing some of the things that we do with our hands and shoulders and arms whilst we're giving this information can make it more genuine, more authentic, can make us more vulnerable. 
The reason we go for these shielding techniques or turning away from the person we're speaking to, looking away, hiding our face, is because we don't feel we can be that vulnerable. We want to protect ourselves, we want to hide ourselves a little bit away. We want to put up some kind of barrier or shield. If you're talking to a loved one or a, uh, a romantic partner, but it's a difficult conversation, being open and vulnerable, putting yourself, giving everything across in your forms of communication can be a really good way to help soften that blow and to put, make yourself vulnerable when you know the person on the other end of it is going to be feeling vulnerable because of what you're telling them. Little details like that can make a difference, a real difference, like a genuine difference. And if we apply that to things like business, where we talked about a sales meeting or a meeting with your boss, the way you communicate, the multi-layered way you communicate, again, can be the difference between a deal being signed or not, between you getting a promotion or not. Are you giving confidence off in your body language whilst you're talking to your boss? Your boss wants to see that if he's thinking about you for a promotion. They want to see confidence behind the person. You can say the right things, but somebody who says that with no confidence has very little impact compared to somebody who says the right things with a stance that has power or control or confidence lied behind it. Body language and the different types of language that we can use can be hugely powerful. They can help us win. They can help us get success. They can protect us in moments when we need protecting. And look, there are a number of occasions, and we go back to Formula One here, there are occasions when it's not always the right thing to give the entire truth to somebody. The entire truth, the complete, authentic, vulnerable you, on some occasions, it is absolutely valid to protect yourself from some of that, to hold some of that back. I'm thinking about if you're in a if you're a, a founder of a startup business, as an example, this is an example that I've come across on a number of occasions, founders of a startup business who are going in for a round of funding, sitting with a group of venture capitalists, for example, the people who might just hold the key to the success of their business, the sustainability of their the survival even of their young business. You may be sitting there as a founder with zero confidence that you can actually pay the staff's wages on Friday because the bank account is currently empty. You don't really want to tell that to the VCs, the, the investors, sat around the other side of the table because that does give an impression that A, you've got no confidence and B, you're running your business on an edge, on a knife edge, that it could collapse at any minute. And if they put some money into that, are you still going to continue running on that same fragile a high risk um, philosophy that's going to lower their confidence to back the business. And so in those moments, you stay away from that side of things. In those moments, you might have to communicate differently. You communicate with confidence, even though you might not have some. So you've got to choose your word, choose what you talk about, but also delivering that with the confidence that's going to give the right impression to the person that's receiving the communication. So it's not always just about lowering your guard. It's about choosing who you're talking to and what you need to say to them, what message you need to get across and what needs to lie behind that message, and then choosing the forms of communication that will best suit that. That's a skill. That's an art form. That's something that has to be developed over time. But what I'm encouraging you guys to think about a bit more this week is to try and learn and understand a little bit more about what your body language 
and your layers of communication are saying to the people on the other end of it. Everything from how you send a text message. Could you replace that with a voice note that has a little bit more personality in it, that can be is less likely to be misconstrued and cause problems further down the line? Where you can get intonation, tone of voice, a little bit of emotion into that voice note. Could you, give, could you just ring them up? Could you give them a call? Pick the phone up, old school. Could you go around and see them? Are these forms of communication actually going to serve you better in this particular context? Or is a text message okay? There are many times when it is. But choose wisely about how you communicate. First of all, which type of communication you choose to use for any given situation. And then once you've made that decision, think about what layers you're going to add to it to give it the context it needs, give it the, the gravitas that it might need, or the emotion or the vulnerability, whatever it is you need in that situation, choose the layers to add to your communication that make that most effective. It is, as I said, a skill. It's a fascinating subject. There are a number of brilliant books, many of which I have read over the years, but also there's a lot of information that you can just Google and find online. There's a lot of TED Talks, there's a lot of YouTube videos, however you like to get your information, it's worth spending half an hour just trying to understand a few more of these little telltale signs, both so that you can read people better, but also how you can give off the right message, because doing that can genuinely put you on a path towards the success that you're after in a much more efficient way. It can be that powerful. So that's communication from a multi-layered perspective. Now, I said earlier on that I was going to come back to the idea of internal communication. So if you're in a team or an organization or in a family or a group of friends, how do you talk to each other? How do you communicate with each other inside that group? So on a much more friendly and familiar basis, not when we're talking to the outside world or the media, but how do you talk to the closest people around you? That type of communication is equally as important and equally multi-layered, equally has power and value when done correctly and when done in the right way. And so thinking about that is equally as important. Now, the reason that I want to bring this up is because when I talk about how we learnt about communication inside a Formula One team back in the day when no one else was really thinking about it, the reason we got down that path was we were thinking about the performance of our team. And as I said earlier, it was almost all technical back then. If you wanted to win championships, you directed your resource, your budget and most of your efforts into making the car go more quickly through technical solutions. What we realised very early in the 2000s, when no one else in Formula One was really giving this any thought, was that behind those technological solutions are all of those people, as I mentioned. If we want to strive for maximum performance, whether it's a Formula One team or any business or just in your lives, behind that performance, a huge part of it is the people. Now, if it's just you, there's one human there. That's the 100% of your team is human. Your human side has an enormous bearing on what kind of performance, technical or otherwise, you're able to produce. In a Formula One team, that car is designed and manufactured and operated and developed. It's financed all by people, by humans behind the scenes. Now, we know from studying people and human behaviour that people's outputs, people's performance is massively variable depending on how they think on how they're feeling, 
on their moods, on how much sleep they've had, on many of the human factors behind them, whether they've had an argument with their partner at home before they came into the office. These things have a massive bearing on their performance in the day. And if we think about a Formula One team, if they are struggling for their own personal performance throughout any given day, the team is also going to suffer as a result. We may not get the best designs. We might not get a component manufactured within a deadline or on budget because there might be one or many people who are operating below par. And when we started to realise that and address it, we understood that actually, if we want to win world championships, it's no good just focusing on this little part of our Formula One team, a part that had been given so much importance over the years, we'd neglected what was actually an even bigger part of the team. I mean, it was the team, the thousand people that made up the McLaren Formula One team, together with Mercedes back then, they were our single biggest asset. They were behind everything. And we'd given importance to human performance when it came to the drivers, because they were the focal point of the humans in our team. The star of the show, the guy behind the wheel that we would send out onto the field of play when the race starts. Of course, we need that guy to be operating at maximum performance. So we give him a trainer. They go through physical training regimes. They follow dietary regimes. We even look at sports psychologists as we went through that decade, trying to give every single opportunity to improve that we could find, because that guy, that human, was really important. What we understood during that period of time that others weren't quite grasping at that point was that all of those thousand people in the team were also hugely important, massively important. And therefore, if we want to maximise everything, we need to give that same level of attention to those humans as we do the human that sat behind the wheel. As a result of that, we began to give physical training regimes to the staff, to the pit stop crews. We'd give dietary regimes to follow for the pit stop crew with nutritionists uh, working inside the team, working directly with those people. Sports psychologists on hand for anybody who needed it or wanted it. Many teams and businesses outside of this that I see today offer psychological uh, sessions, offer sessions with therapists. Um, they offer it as a, as a sort of where you have to opt out. So it's a given. It's part of your package. And if you don't want it, you have to physically opt out rather than having to opt in, which is the case in most people's uh, lives today. You have to physically make that choice to go and see a therapist or a psychologist. Whereas actually, if we really want to maximise everything we've got, that should be the norm. It should be seen as the norm. And actually, if somebody doesn't want it, they've got to physically opt out. It destigmatizes it. It makes it more available and useful to everybody. But back in the team back then, we were starting to appreciate that these humans needed to be maximised. And that meant understanding how they felt giving them the best opportunity to feel good, to be happy at work, to feel fulfilled in their roles, to give them some autonomy and freedom to come up with ideas and drive the future and shape their own direction in which their careers were going. Of course, it's a process that evolves continuously over time, but part of that was encompassed in this whole study around communication. Because the way that people feel, and as we said, that directly impacts the way that they perform, the way people feel is quite often affected in quite dramatic ways by the way they are communicated to. And as we've said, that could have been from people at home in their family or in their life outside of work. They might have had a text message from their other half that 
they might have misread and it might have been that that's got their back up a little bit. So now their stress levels are a little bit higher. They are not thinking quite as clearly as they would have been. They're perhaps even angry if they've had an argument uh, on those levels. But inside the team, there's communication happening all day, every single day. Within those teams, the people are talking to each other. The line managers are passing down instructions to other people in the team. The hierarchy within that organisation is constantly communicating and sending messages, instructions, reports up and down that chain. And those levels of communication can also have a massive bearing on how people feel, perhaps even the biggest bearing. Given that they're happening all day, every day inside the workplace, how many of you have had a boss who's asked you to do something without any explanation? It seems unreasonable. It seems like it's irrational. To you, it makes no sense. But all you've got is an instruction and told to go away and get on with it. How do you feel when you get that? You feel confused. You feel frustrated. You might feel angry if it's happened multiple times. Are you going to go away from that and do the best job? Of course you're not. And that's a very obvious example. But the nuances behind these levels of communication are tiny. They are fragmented. And if you start to really delve into the tiny little elements of nuance in communication, you can start to, and this is what we did in Formula One, it's incremental gains, like we did with the car. You can start to incrementally improve the way we communicate up and down the organisation. And over time, that has this wave of transformation of the way that people talk and communicate with each other and therefore the way they feel and therefore the way they operate and perform. Now, it can be as simple as sending out a communication when someone's done a a good job, telling them they've done a good job. Literally that, telling them they've done a great job. Over the course of F1 testing these last few days, inside the teams that will have been happening. These are the first times that these teams have got hold of these cars in a competitive environment or out in the, in the field, if you like. These people are doing jobs. Mechanics will be changing engines and power units and wheels and components for the first time on these cars. If they're bosses, if they're managers, their team managers, their chief mechanics, their chief engineers come along and say, great job, guys. That was good. You smashed that. Really good. I think we can improve it here and here. But look, for the first time, that was amazing. Has a little instant effect on those people. They've been recognised, they've been appreciated. Takes a second to do, but has an impact on the people that receive it. Same thing goes for the drivers. Now, it might seem weird to be telling a driver they've done a good job and giving them a pat on the back. These are Formula One drivers. They're the best in the world. They don't need someone coming along and telling them they've done a good job. They do. They're humans. They are just more humans in this big organisation of humans, and they respond to positive feedback. Well, they respond to constructive feedback because even if they haven't done a great job, you can communicate that information in the right way where it's constructive, where it helps people to understand that there's an opportunity to improve. Yes, it may be not quite where we want to be right now, but look, I've got some ideas that we can help improve it. I've been looking at the data. We think you can maybe go a little bit deeper on the brakes into this corner. Look at your teammate. He's managed to do that. And yes, he's getting out of the corner a little bit quicker. It's a tiny amount, but we think if we work on it, we can get there as well. Communication like that, telling someone when they've done a good job, has an enormous impact on how they feel and therefore how they then go about their job. But the other really big impact is how they then communicate with others. If you tell somebody they've done a really good job when they have, 
they are highly likely to go on and tell somebody else when they've done a good job. And this is how this positive message spreads like a wave throughout the organisation. People affirming good work, positive outcomes or positive input. These things have a massive impact on the teams that receive them, but also on the teams that might be below them because that is passed on. People pay it forward. The way you give bad information can be equally as powerful and showing some kind of understanding and empathy towards people in your levels of communication is massive, massively important. Now, when we did studies around this, around communication back in the mid or early 2000s, some of the experts that came in talked about empathy. Back then it was a word, I'll be honest, I'd never heard of. I had an understanding from there on about what empathy is about understanding how others might be feeling, putting yourself in their shoes, trying to envisage how they might be receiving the communication that you're giving out. The moment you're able to switch positions momentarily in your mind, put yourself in that person's shoes as you're about to deliver a message, positive or negative, the easier you find it to put yourself in the other person's perspective massively changes how you communicate with them. Because communicating through empathy and showing an understanding, whether it's good or bad news, of what that person is seeing, how they are hearing it, what they're taking, changes the way you deliver the message. It changes the words you use, but it also changes your body language. It changes the tone of voice you use and the intonation, as we said. The way you look at that person, the way you stand in front of that person, where you deliver that message, how and when you deliver that message. These are all layers of communication that can be tailored and tweaked once you understand how that person is most likely to receive that message you're thinking about. In the business world, it's the same. If you are selling to a client, if you are understanding what that client is after, put yourselves in the positions of that client. What do they need from you? What sort of advantage can you offer them? What can you tell them that will really help to trigger the drivers or the motivations that they might have. Once you understand the person and you understand how they will hear and see what you're saying to them, you can tweak how you do those things to give the greatest impact. Communication is massively powerful on so many different levels. So going back to the idea of telling a Formula One driver that they've done a good job during a day's testing can have a massive impact because it boosts their confidence. It lets them know they're being appreciated and what they've done has been noticed, but they will then go and talk to a hundred other people in that team. They are a leader in that team. They're an influential person. And if they start to feel good because you've said as a boss, you've said something good to them. In fact, not even just as a boss, anybody can say something positive to a driver in a Formula One team. It's a really good point, in fact. It was an oversight on my part. If you're a mechanic, if you're an engineer, if you're a truck driver, and yet you go up to a driver, a racing driver, and say, listen, that was great out there, you know? Really impressed with what you did. That was amazing. Or the way you delivered that information in the debrief was so clear and concise, it's really helping the engineers right now to get a picture of what we need to do. Those little positive affirmations will make that driver feel good and then they go around the garage, around the team, speaking to others, doing the same sort of things because they've got their chest puffed out. They've got that air of confidence about them and because of that, they pass on that positivity. 
If you do the opposite, if you don't say something, if you just fail to communicate or you communicate a negative message in the wrong way, it has, of course, the opposite effect. And that same wave of negativity spreads throughout the team because that driver will either not go and communicate with anyone else or when they do, it's going to be tinged with negativity. It's going to be tinged with frustration and that will be passed on. The same thing happens in your families and in your group of friends. The messages and the sentiment behind the messages can have a huge impact, not just on the one person you speak to, but the chain of people that that person then speaks to after that, or the people around them when that message is delivered. Delivering a message in public, of course, reaches so many more people, but the same thing applies. So thinking about how you deliver a message, first of all, in what you say, but how you say it, what type of words you use, what type of voice you've got on, and how you're approaching that person when, when you say it. What message comes along behind the message? What intonation? What's the feeling that's being con- conveyed behind the actual message? Those things are details that we can all start to think more about. And if we do, we can have an even greater impact on the people that are receiving the messages. And that can translate into performance. In our businesses and our companies, we can transform our performance through our communication. Now, that might seem like a tenuous link, but I'm telling you, through some fairly exhaustive studies that we did at McLaren back in the mid-2000s, this is proven. There is science behind this. This can transform a business and an organisation. It can transform a team. It can transform a family unit. It can transform the way you and your romantic partner interact with each other. It can get you out of trouble just as quickly as it can get you into trouble if you get it wrong. It can help to build relationships, and those relationships are what form great teams. Great teams have maximum performance, and maximum performance delivers success, whether that's in Formula One or in any industry that you're operating right now, or in your personal lives. The same thing applies. So think about your communication. Consciously think about it. We do it all day, every day. We've all been doing it every day, all of our lives. But how often have we actually thought about it? How often have we stopped and thought about it? I was forced to do that at McLaren and it's opened my eyes ever since. I've continued to learn about the different types of communication and what lie behind it ever since that time. And it fascinates me. I'm still really intrigued. I still read books on the subject today because I'm still learning. There's so much more that you can understand. And the more you understand, the more effectively you can use what is one of our most powerful tools available to us. Let me know how you get on. Right, that is it for this week, folks. I want to say a massive thank you again for spending an hour with me. Really, really appreciate it from the bottom of my heart. I hope you have a wonderful week. And by the time I speak to you again we will be into the first Grand Prix weekend of the season. I hope you're enjoying testing so far. I hope you're enjoying the hype around it. Drive to Survive has dropped as well. There's so much talk around Formula One. The season is almost upon us. I hope you're enjoying it and excited as I am, and I will catch you very soon. In the meantime, whatever it is you're doing, whatever it is you're up to, Try and think about this as you go through your day. Check in with yourself and refer back to it at the end of every day, as I do and just see how close you can get to this. Use it as a mantra for your performance. Do the right things, do the things right.